Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shiggle, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Steve Walchek, Chief Innovation Officer at FIS. In this role, he co-founded, co-designed, and leads the innovation and incubation organization at FIS, which currently serves more than 1 million merchants located worldwide, including 60% of the largest retailers, 90% of the largest global banks, and 90% of the top private equity firms. Prior to joining FIS two years ago, Steve led both the ISV Technology Partner Team and worldwide strategy for emerging services at Amazon Web Services. Prior to AWS, Steve played founding and leadership roles at three startups that successfully exited via acquisition for combined value of over a billion dollars. Please enjoy my conversation with Steve Walchek. Welcome, Steve, to Fast Frontiers. Very excited to have you on our show. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm thrilled to be here. So much fun. So a lot to cover today. Your background's extremely interesting to me as chief innovation officer inside a large corporation of the frontier of technology and financial transactions. Uh, but first, before we get into FIS, love to talk some about your background and what led you to this position. Yeah, so there's a there's a very long story, and I'm going to try and abridge, I'm going to try and make that an abridged version. The the shorter story is I'm an I'm an entrepreneur, much like you, Tim. I'm I've been in technology for the last 15 years in various capacities, from founder to to, to product manager to business development, kind of everything in between that. I've done tech support when when needed, and, and you know when you're in a startup, you you wear every hat. And I've I've had the good fortune of wearing every hat. And I started when I was 20, was the first company I started. I uh, I, I left Pepperdine to go and uh, start something called Debt Market. Debt Market is a was was an online trading platform for banks to trade hold on debt. The timing could not have been more I'd say interesting. For better or for worse, we started in 2008 trading asset-backed debt, which was, <laughs> as you can imagine, a little bit of a tough time to get that started. And, uh, and we ended up selling that to Intercontinental Exchange, which was great. Um, I made zero money on the transaction, but learned a lot. And uh, went from there. We did three other startups after that. Two, two additional startups of, of those three got acquired. With total exit value of about a billion, $1.12 billion. So we, I've been in the startups for a long time. Which of those companies had the most growth in, from a, a revenue standpoint? You don't need to give me the number necessarily. But... That was Solidfire. Uh, Solidfire was a, a storage company. They built uh, uh, all flash storage arrays and, and put some really unique OS features that allowed you to provision IOPS. That sold to uh, NetApp for about $875 million. Um, I led business development in that company. It was a great company. I really enjoyed it. It was based out of Boulder. So, so I have a thesis around, around entrepreneurship and growth. So Go for it. could you just kind of compare that, what that growth experience was like versus the other startups that you were in? What, you know, what was different or what did you learn or take away from that? You know, I think there's a lesson in, involved in every startup. And I think tenacity plays. There's a lot of luck involved in everything. You know, the, the growth we saw there was through a lot of creativity we we entered some markets that went really well. Um, we were talking about open source software offline earlier, Tim. Um, we entered the OpenStack space back when there was you know a news distributed platform for running cloud and orchestrating cloud. 
and people were trying to figure out how to make that happen outside of AWS and, and, and Azure before they were the monoliths they are today. And we chased hard after that space and, uh, and we, we had some good wins early on. Now, I would say that was great. We kind of lucked out on timing there. We entered really well. We were the kind of only player in town. We had, there was a, there was a particular API we integrated with called Cinder and we had the developer who wrote the Cinder API in our team. So we were really well known in that space. But if you look at OpenStack today, it doesn't exist, but it, it did. And we kind of timed it really nicely then. So the, 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 the lessons I always pull away that I think I've carried forward, especially into today's roles, and because and, no matter what, if you're operating and doing something new that's going to change an industry, it's going to be hard and keeping your head on straight. Um, I have this analogy I like to talk to my team about where you have to imagine that you're on a plane and uh, you're sitting next to a passenger who's a pilot and you look over at the pilot. He's not the pilot of the plane and, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, you hit turbulence and he white knuckles his chair and he's sitting there going, oh, my God. And you're saying, oh, wait, is it time to panic now? I always tell my team, don't be that pilot. Be the pilot at the front of the plane who's getting over the, over the horn saying, ladies and gentlemen, a little bit of turbulence, no big deal, we'll be on the ground in two hours. Calm, cool, collected voice, learning how to lead through chaos. And, and make no mistake, startups and change in general, doesn't matter if you're at a startup or a big company, it can be chaotic, it can be hard. Um, so tenacity is the big lesson that I've always taken away. It's just to, to remain tenacious, keep pushing, to take that resilience and, and kind of judo that momentum into um, into opportunity. That's great. Yeah, the uh, people like to think of growth as some kind of smooth curve, and it's it is it's managed chaos, right? It's just you're a little <laughs> out of control. Managed chaos is the best way I've heard it described. I love that. I'm going to start using that. Manage chaos. Exactly. So we sold Solid Fire. I, I had an interest that I had, AWS was reaching out to me at that time. I took over as head of technology partnerships there for a year. That's the coolest thing about Amazon. I can talk endlessly about the culture there and my experience there. I, I had, a, I think it's an amazing company. It was wonderful to work for. They really encouraged lateral moves. They want you to just go and explore. They, they, they say once Amazonian, always Amazonian. And so if there's an open role, you want to go explore. So I started off as a head of technology partnerships, kind of we had experienced amazing growth in that role, wanted to go in and lead, go to market on some emerging services, things like IoT, AIML, um, and help them structure um, their go-to-market strategy across partnerships, across customers, and, and really think through how we were going to actually bring these things to light. And, and in particular, these are sticky services and they're difficult services to deploy to. So that was really fun. I really love the challenge of that. And we, we saw some, some really cool growth and some amazing use cases emerge from that. And some things that didn't work out as well, which was great. I'm sure. Uh, but the, the culture of Amazon was really, I think, the thing I took away. And, and getting around to today's role, and I'm sorry to spend so much time on my background. The culture at Amazon is really the thing I reflect on most highly. You know, Jeff managed, I say Jeff like I know him. Um, I, I, Jeff Bezos managed to, uh, to, to create a culture where a lot of the early artifacts from being in a startup and, and having to put things together to build your culture, to reinforce a culture where high performers were both attracted to it and were given the tools they needed to be successful. They, they kept that, they maintained that. So it, it still felt there was 550,000 people at that company when I left. And it still felt like it was, you know, the energy was new. It was like this small startup that we were changing the world and everybody felt that going in and, and, and everybody was willing to, to the extent that they had the bandwidth to help you, whatever champion any idea, 
that you had, um, but whatever they could do to help you, they, they would do that. It was, it was so cool to see what that bred. I mean, it really created a culture where people were encouraged to innovate. Um, and I say innovate to, to, to think outside the context of the role to, to say, how can I make my customers' lives easier today and tomorrow? That's that, that day mean? one, that day one philosophy, right? That's that day one philosophy, right? I love that philosophy. I'm a big fan of it. Every new employee that joins my team, I encourage them to read 98 shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos in 2017, where he kind of coined it's day one still. So I, uh, I, I, I love the culture I pulled away. Now there's a lot of things that I would not pull away from there. And I don't need to get into the good and bad of Amazon, only that I was so impressed that as a company of that scale, they were able to maintain that, that the drive and hunger and the energy to, to create new. And I think that is so valuable and so important. Um, and I carried that a lot into to WorldPay, which then was acquired by FIS. And you know, here we are today. And, and how we set up our team is really interesting too. I'm sure we're going to get into that in a moment, but that's, that's my background. AWS for three years, um, number of different opportunities to go and play in different roles and check out different services that they were launching and be a part of that. And, uh, and then got to come to, to WorldPay and, and launch something new there uh, before we were acquired. So describe your role as you see it. And as the company sees it, I guess, as chief innovation officer, maybe they, hopefully they're the same thing. Maybe they're different. I, I love that question. Um, I, I always laugh. The innovation is one of those weird words that means everything and nothing all at the same time. And in particular, in a corporate space, everyone wants to hear about how you're innovating. As I loathe sometimes that's a part of my title. Like it sounds cool, but it also says, what does this guy actually deliver? I think it's neat because innovation can look different contingent upon the party that is doing it. Um, and I say that meaning FIS has come from a company that was, and, and I mean this with due respect to the history, they've, they've been amazing at getting to the position they are today. And the, the thing that I love is Gary Norcross, our, our CEO, is so focused on how do I, that, that notion of innovation of how do I think about my customers' needs today and tomorrow and service both of them. There is a, our, our current product organization was a part of the line of business before, um, before 2020. And in fact, Gary said, I don't see the incentives aligned appropriately to think today and tomorrow about our customers. So I'm going to create the chief growth office and they hired a chief Ramji to, to run that. And to me, I go, that's what I mean by innovation looks different. Like that's innovation to think about how do I, how do I, how do I, incentivize my teams appropriately to create for my customers needs today and for tomorrow and to pull them out of a, how do I stay quarterly focused to start to look at long-term opportunities? How do I stay relevant in this space? I love that, that day two companies are, they, they are, they become obsolete, but first they fade to irrelevant. That's what Jeff Bezos has said. Um, and I, I took that away. I love that because it's like day one companies are constantly changing, constantly shifting, meeting their customers' needs. But that is a huge nugget there. My friend, Dr. David Goldberg calls them polarities, right? And and I think Amazon, you had the same thing. A lot of that innovation comes from managing tension between two opposite thoughts, right? Uh, disagree and commit, right? And today and tomorrow, which is which is so awesome. How do you balance those two things? And I'd imagine there's, you know, how do you deal with the sacred cows? How do you deal with end of lifeing something to say, hey, this is a great profit contributor, but it's not going to be one in 18 months. Any examples and, and there you can give of that? 
none of well i don't want to call out specific products more so that the the creation of the chief growth office by gary with the insight that he had to say how do i create for today and tomorrow and incentivize the right teams to think correctly so when products are part of a line of business they're they're tied to thinking quarterly how do i serve my high-end customers right. and they lose out and, and again now you're you, you see the innovators still not play out right you you have to serve your high-end customers your your current product sets over serving a low-end customer and then you have you, you know you you have no ability for to, to to build disruptive innovation or disruptive growth uh, against those because your teams are now incentivized to serve your big margin customers and then that that, that allows for a new market entrance to come in and, and and eat your low end and then go up higher and, and i'll give you a great example of this happening to WorldPay um before you know they came as a part of fis and then everything kind of got swapped around which is phenomenal you know square came in and you know, they said, look, we're going to go and eat up the lower than $250,000 in processing revenue a year, right? And any of these, I'm sorry, $250,000 in um, processing volume per year. We're going to go and eat those customers. And, and WorldPay and other processors were going, well, that's fine. Go and touch them. We don't really care about those guys. And I'm not saying they don't care now, but historically, they definitely didn't. Whereas, like, we've got this. We're going to go and give them and serve them appropriately. Um, what you then saw was Square went, well, now that I've gotten a hold of this one, I'm going to start to eat up market on these low, they kind of start to go up the market into the 250 to 500 range and then the 500 to a million range. And they, they started to take on a lot of things that were totally overserved by a product set. And, you know, there, there are so many examples of this happening. You can go to the Blockbuster Netflix, this notion of I have to serve my and sustain innovation in one category and I, and I ignore um, disruptive opportunities. So, and, and the reason that that is, is because they're tied to um, particular incentive structures. So if, if product is a part of line of business, it's, I got to serve this quarter and I'm thinking my roadmap is for this quarter or next quarter, or maybe at the most 12 months. But I'm not thinking two, three, four years down the road, citing trends, looking at what's happening and seeing where can I go and how can I best serve my customers needs for tomorrow? All I'm thinking about is today. And that's really difficult. Now, FIS did that today thing really well, but they didn't do the tomorrow thing as well. They thought about it, but they didn't have a team that was um, able to execute on it. And this is, by the way, endemic of so many companies through the through the, the, the 2010s that I, I remember when I was at AWS and I would sit in these executive briefings and I would get these, my, my peers actually in the industry um, would come in and they'd bring their whole team and we would talk to them about all these cool emerging services. Um, and then the next year I would see that same team come back in, but that leader was gone. And I would say, oh, where's so-and-so? And they would say, oh, they, they got let go. And like, Why is that? Well, because they didn't provide any value, right? They didn't focus on value creation. They focused on pie in the sky, non-moonshot, just looking really cool at trade shows and building robots that swiped a credit card for you. Not super interesting. <laughs> really cool to look at. Really cool to look at. We'll draw people to your booth, but doesn't provide value. So there's... There's this, there's this notion of I have to still think tomorrow, but I also have to be creating value along the way to showcase to everyone, showcase the world to our customers that we actually know what, what's coming. So throughout the 2010s, you saw a lot of people migrate away from this innovation feeder into uh, how do I incentivize the right teams to do so? And, and FIS latched onto that opportunity and really they created my role, which is to say, how do I think about my customers' needs over the next uh, three to five years? and start to create opportunities for us to invest internally in organic growth ventures. So I, I have um, product design engineering underneath me, sales, 
Um, we actually launched discrete ventures out of my team um, that act like independent product sets, and they have their own growth metrics completely differentiated from existing line of business. Because line of business still has to sustain innovation for our existing customers, but we have to access new mar market entrants. We have to access disruptive growth opportunities, and we have to uh, execute on them as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, we created the, the um, FIS Impact Labs, which is our innovation crew, um, which, which has a number of different ways in which we get to create um, organic growth across, uh, across FIS. Our incentive is tied to growth, but it's about long-term growth with very key charted milestones along the way. We are not about innovation theater. We are about value creation. And, uh, and, and we know that we were already able to do that in many ways, both short and long term. So, so just like a startup, you're measured by and have to pass certain, I would imagine, you know, product market fit sort of tests, right? The, the market's going to dictate whether that innovation of yours provides value or not. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. And the, the thing is, and Tim, I, I hate the term fail fast, so I don't want to use that um, or the phrase fail fast. The idea here is that we, we, we learn more about what the market thinks of our product. And then we, if we don't, if the market says no, then we just shelf it. Mm-hmm. May not be right now. There's all sorts of reasons why product market fit doesn't happen. Doesn't mean your product is poor. It just could have been a timing thing. So well, we got these ideas. So we can. That's something we talk about with startups all the time. Your initial revenue, I think revenue in two phases. Your your first million or so is like your test revenue versus your scale revenue. And that test revenue, you want to optimize for learning, not necessarily for growth. Right. So you're engaging the customer, trying to provide innovation. It sounds like that's how you're thinking about it. Tim, that's, I, I love what you just said there. I, the way I phrase that exact same sentiment, sentiment to my team is that most startups spend their entire Series A seed and pre-seed rounds on trying to find product market fit. And hopefully they've done it fast enough to raise their B so that they can go and actually accelerate in the market now that they've found their fit. And, and a lot of VCs don't have patience for that. But this is what's, what's so neat about our, our uh, uh, doing this internally at a, um, at a large company is that I have access to all of the things that FIS has set up, wonderful channels, great brand equity in our, our existing spaces, really great partnerships with a number of different play, uh, across a number of different vectors in, within, within payments, within banking, and capital markets. So I, I can go and look at something that I can create that I think has value, an extraordinary value in three to five years, and I can go and test that product market fit really quickly. And I mean, in 10 weeks or less, we aim to go and test the product market fit and viability of an opportunity. If we at any point during that, ten, that those, those 10 weeks don't see it, we kill it and we move the next idea into the funnel. And we, we can keep testing until we find the thing that we know our customers are going to want today um, and also is going to provide them value um, over the next three to five years. It's a great um, And then we have a, yeah, it's a phenomenal advantage. And it's one of the, it, it's hard to do. Um, don't get me wrong, it's not as easy as I just made it sound, but the, and, and the hard things are you have to navigate, you know, all sorts of existing, in some cases, we're building things that may end up competing with products that we have today. The goal here is to say, well, that, that might be true today, but is that going to be true tomorrow? And if we don't take advantage of this, who's going to continue to, to who's, who's going to eat our lunch? And some, look, there's a lot of smart people in this world and they have a lot of great ideas and they're thinking about this stuff. If we can move as fast, at least as fast as those people, or even just catch, you know, catch the, the, the calmer waters behind the icebreaker. Great. Like that's not a bad place for us to live for every Uber. There's going to be a lift, right? So yep. I'm okay with, with either or. Sounds like you'd make uh, Eric Reese proud. 
your lean startup methods there. <laughs> That's right. I know. I know. He's a he's a fan. We love that methodology too on this team. So. So how do you can you describe kind of how you interface then with the the general managers or business line owners of the it's called more mature product lines. Yeah, uh, we we actually have a role carved out on our team specifically for driving relationship development. It's interesting because we launched and onboarded a large team six months into the year. So we started our hiring for everyone in June of this year. Um, and we went from four to 46 people in a very short period of time um, in a COVID space. So there's no office time um, and, and building trust there. We have a role that we carved out specifically for building relationships with different parts of the organization. I said that earlier part to kind of go in a non-COVID era, we would be able to have him fly all around, go meet these people, take them out to dinner, you know, get to have these relationships. We don't have that opportunity. So it's a 30 minute meeting and you have to go and build a relationship with them really quickly, help them understand the value that you're going to bring them. Um, and then make sure we have good headway into those. He's done an, an excellent job of that. The hardest part here has actually been, we have, we've already launched our first venture. It's very quiet and stealth right now. Um, it will go very big next year and it's going to be really exciting. It's in the payment space and I can't wait for everyone to be able to talk about it because this is something that everyone will use. But the, uh, the, that's our first example of that being put into action. And it was early bit of pain trying to convince them, uh, trying to tell the story of, hey, we exist in the same sentence of, we need you to help us sell something. <laughs> Right? right. But over time, that message has become fluid because they hear the customers, their customers start to respond. And all it takes is a few of them before the word starts getting around. People start talking to each other. And then they start to realize, wow, these, this is a, this new team really has something interesting for customers that can provide value. And they care immensely about that. So the, the hard part is just kind of breaking down to the initial, hey, I have no way of knowing who you are because you're brand new. I've got a bunch of competing priorities. You can't come clients and we can't get dinner. We can't build relationships in the traditional ways. So we've had to kind of be, I told you about resilience earlier. You just kind of, you got to be resilient. You got to be tenacious and you just got to keep moving. And, and eventually they've been amazing. They've opened up the doors to us, the customers. What we've also been able to do is um, we do these, these Google Venture style sprints um, where we work with a bunch of different leaders from uh, across the organization, whether that's in product, engineering, in customer service, we do, uh, and, and sales, and we bring them into a room and we start to go and say, what, what are some, here's a big theme. Let's go and build some concepts. Let's just go and see if we can create some concepts against that together. And we run these really great sprints against that too. So all these little ways help foment that relationship and, and that and build that credibility. But we never go in assuming credibility. We just always believe we have to continually earn trust. And, and we, we care immensely about that and we guard our reputation really highly. And spend a lot of time developing that. So it's a, it's a bit of a multifaceted approach. And sorry, it's a big answer to your question, but uh, it's, it's been, uh, it's been hard. None, well, it just, it just shows that how multidimensional, you know, the issue is and how it's, it's so relational oriented, just like a startup, just like an entrepreneur, right? You're buying something from some new company while well, you're buying it from that person. You're buying it from Steve, right? You got to trust him. So it starts at a trust layer and then, Okay, are you credible? Can you deliver what you say you're going to deliver? Yeah, it takes a lot of skills. Uh, good for you. It sounds like yeah, I'm, I'm huge grateful for the people on our team. Yeah, it's been it's been super fun. We've got, I mean, Gary, our, our CEO, and and my boss, um, a from G, and the rest of the organization, just been so supportive of pushing this forward. They they understand. Um, that's what's so exciting. 
uh, they, they understand what it's going to take for, for FIS to not be a day two company. And they care about that. They want this to remain a day one company. And, and I love that. I'm, I, it's why I'm here. It's because that hunger to, 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 to be the change. And so it's been, it's been so fun. I, I love this company a that's, lot. And that, that, that's clear based on what you're saying. And you know, kudos to Gary Norcross because this sort of activity within a company, if you don't have the full, not just support, but encouragement from the CEO from the top, I just think it, it, it doesn't work. It, it just can't work. Right. So clearly he's providing that, that giving you the, the platform and the context, not just you, but the whole organization to embrace this idea of innovation. That's right. I, and well said too. Uh, absolutely. We, we, I, I always tell my team, we, we, uh, you, if you thought this was, if this, if you thought this was going to be an easy job, uh, you definitely signed up for the wrong team. If you thought this was going to be a non-risky job, you signed up for the wrong team. We all decided to run off this cliff together. We took arguably the hardest hardest job in all of corporate, any large company, to say we're going to go and innovate and be be the arm that helps drive value for our customers over the next three to five years. <laughs> I, I just you got to remember what you signed up. You signed up to do the the hard thing, but the hard things are what what provide the highest value and highest return. It's, it's kind of mission-oriented and value-oriented, too. People really feel that. Um, they, they, they love that this is the hard work. They love that they signed up for, you know, arguably the most difficult job in all of corporate. And, and, and we, we steered clear of innovation overall um, as a titling pro. That's why we're called FIS Impact Labs, because we want to deliver impact, not be tied to, a, a, you know, a, a notional idea of creation. That's great. So when you think about the future, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you know, the author, kind of futurist leadership author, Bob Johansson, who wrote Leaders Make the Future. And we mentioned managed chaos before. He said, you know, in the future, leaders have to bring clarity to chaos, right? So as you think about the future of technology, so many different issues to think about, you know, machine learning and AI and big data, you have to navigate that space successfully and kind of put on your, your, your goggles here in terms of looking at the future. What's the future look like? Not only for FIS, but the, the industry and for the companies, you know, the merchants, the startups, e-commerce, how is, how is that all going to change 20 years from now? You know, I, I love that, that you're asking this question. It's an easy one to try and over prep for, but every time I'm asked that I don't do any preparation because I, I like to start to think about, the, the way I look at it is the, the future is frictionless in commerce, right? And as, we, as you look historically, what has happened, we've just reduced friction over and over and over again in commerce. We've made money changing hands across borders, across um, barriers, you know, easier and cheaper, frankly. So let's, let's fast forward 20, 30 years, 40 years uh, ahead of time. You know, we, we're in a world of frictionless commerce. And I'll paint a video. Did you ever see the show Westworld, Tim? No. Westworld on HBO? Okay. There's a scene where the main character in that, um, she's walking through uh, an apartment building. She taps into her, her AI assistant, and she says, get me an apartment here. And the AI assistant says, negotiating. And says, congratulations, you now have a one-bedroom you know, city view, it costs you $3,000 a month. Would you like to proceed? Yes. Done. Frictionless, right? Now think about all of the things that need to be true for that to be the case, right? 
first of all, you have to have natural language processing so that your AI can actually interpret what's being said over the phone. So we'll start there. Right. That's not really that interesting from a payments perspective, but you know where NLP is right now and it's not, you know, not nearly that capable. The, the things that are much more interesting is that today, when you were to go, if you were to go rent an apartment or if you were to go apply for a mortgage, the amount of background checks that need to be done if you're, if you're renting a place, they have to do a background and criminal history check. They have to do a credit check. All this set of information that, that, that exists in disparate pools that make up Steve Walchek, right? And it's Steve Walchek, the father, Steve Walchek, the homeowner, Steve Walchek, the chief innovation officer. That's, that's me. That's my identity in the financial sphere. They exist in disparate spaces. To make it happen such that I am on, I'm in an apartment building and I say, lease me a space here, and it says, done, uh, is, is basically all of those things can be instantly accessible. They need to be automated in their evaluation. So there's no human in between. The ability for the dollars to be exchanged needs to be fast, cheap, and easy um, and seamless. And so that's the future. The future is frictionless commerce, but there are so many things that need to be true for us to get to a place where there's not 20 people evaluating my loan documentation, my loan officer giving me a call um, every time I apply for a mortgage saying, can you give me 15 pieces of documentation across 15 different sources? It's not easy. And, uh, and that's the, that's the future. So there's the, you know, whether that's, you can tap in all the different technologies there, but when I think about the world, that's the world I want to live in is this, you know, very seamless, very simple, um, frictionless commerce world. And that's, that's, that's what payments 2060 looks like or, or commerce 2060 looks like. Which businesses, which, which commerce, e-commerce companies or not companies specifically, but maybe segments or product offerings are kind of pushing the boundaries today in terms of their business models. Do you see anybody out there doing interesting things? Oh, I, I think there's a lot of interesting movement happening. Ethereum is doing for cross-border payments and the notion of tying it to a stable price when you're thinking about um, payments and uh, payments across geographic regions or countries um, and, and Forex too. I think there's really interesting opportunity there. Um, that that things that that the crypto space can solve, no no month the word on whether or not they are solving it, but but I think there's a lot of opportunity and interest interesting use cases there to be tackled. That's one example of there being less friction in me paying you and you living in a different country. But if you kind of look across the gamut, right? I think Shopify has done a phenomenal job uh, on on all sorts of means. I I love the Stripe Shopify announcement that just came out. Um, where Stripe launched Treasury and Shopify was consuming these banking APIs to offer checking accounts to their merchants. And I thought that was a phenomenal use case, right? Because what have they done? Well, they've looked at the SMB and said, we've got your entire suite of, we've got payments, we've got website launching, we've got logistics handled for you. Now we can make sure that it's really simple for you to manage money, right? And all happens in one place. And one of the biggest things I hear from SMBs is, is that, you know, there's too many different spaces where they have to manage, you know, if I'm, I'm managing my QuickBooks over here, my bank account here, uh, my payroll over here, and these things aren't talking to each other. And, and Shopify is saying, listen, merchant, like we're got, we've got you. You just go and focus on selling your things and we're going to help. And I think there's so much opportunity in that space. Shopify is one player. And so to remove, to, to remove friction in commerce across those categories to centralize um, where 
where money is being, being managed for, for merchants. And, and this is the fun space that FIS just is. We have merchants, we have banks, we have all the software that powers those two. So we get to, we get to start thinking about what does it look like to, uh, to, to provide um, this, these types of value to, to our customers as well. So there's so much opportunity in the SMB space, but that's just e-com. There's also opportunity in SMB brick and mortar, you know, and I think there's, there's, there's a lot of exploration happening around that for us too. That's terrific. I'm going to, I'm going to remember this and uh, frictionless payments or frictionless innovation, right? You, you create something that creates value and the job next job is removing friction so that other people can leverage that value, right? And experience it. So uh, I don't think innovation will ever be frictionless. Otherwise guys like you and I are going to be out of the job. <laughs> That's true. That may be true. <laughs> well, thank you, Steve. That was terrific. Um, thank you for taking the time and sharing that with us in a friction-free sort of way. That was awesome. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Again, in this first week of Fast Frontiers Season 2, we have three great conversations to share. You can listen to them all right now. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Noor Swede, General Partner at Global Ventures. 